0: Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. From fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels and more, we're here to help you find something great to read.
1: Vicki, let me tell you a story. It's about Amos Deegan, who was born Richard Deegan on September 4th, 1945. He took the name Amos in 1964. Fine Old Testament name, Amos. One of the Minor Prophets. Well Vicky, what happened, don't laugh, is that Dick Deegan and his friends, Billy Renfrew, George Kirk, Roberta Wells, and Eddie Hollis among others, they got religion and they killed off their parents. All of them. Isn't that a scream? shot them in their beds, knifed them in their bathtubs, poisoned their suppers, hung them, or disemboweled them, for all I know. Why? The corn. Maybe it was dying. Maybe they got the idea, somehow, that it was dying because there was too much sinning. Not enough sacrifice. They would have done it in the corn. In the rows. And somehow... Vicky, I'm quite sure of this. Somehow, they decided that 19 was as old as any of them could live. Richard Amos Deegan, the hero of our little story... Had his 19th birthday on September 4th, 1964, the date in the book. I think maybe they killed him. Sacrificed him in the corn. Isn't that a silly story? Hello, Books and Nachos listeners. I'm Arnie, and you are now entering Books and Nachos, nicest little podcast in Nebraska or anywhere else, population 5,431. Yes, constant listener, I'm back to review more works by author Stephen King. It feels like it's been a long time since I've gotten to talk King, but I've not been on vacation. I've continued to read and review King works both for here and at NowPlayingPodcast.com. In fact, this Tuesday we'll see the start of Now Playing's Children of the Corn retrospective series. It's hard to believe, but this short story is the basis for nine films. More screen adaptations than any other King work. Not bad for a short story first published in Penthouse in 1977. The story really found its audience, though, when it was reprinted, with just a couple textual changes, in King's 1978 short story collection, Night Shift. The 30-page tale follows Bert and Vicki Robeson, a couple whose marriage is on the rocks. The fighting has been bad, and Vicky has threatened divorce several times. In a last-ditch attempt to save their marriage, the couple is driving cross-country, heading from their home in Boston to see Vicki's brother on the West Coast. The long road trip seems to have the desired effect until, just before the start of this story, Bert turned off the turnpike and onto a backcountry road in Nebraska. There, among the endless cornfields, the couple's arguing resumed and when Bert turned to yell at his wife, he took his eyes off the road just long enough to hit a boy. Having once been a former medical orderly in Vietnam, it doesn't take Bert long to realize that while he did hit the child with his car, the boy had already been killed. His neck was slit. Had he even been alive when struck, he would have died seconds later. The mystery of who murdered the child is the plot of the story, though, as written by King, that mystery comes second to the continued arguing of Vicki and Bert. With the body in their trunk, the bitter couple first tries to go to the nearest town, Gatlin, to report the incident. They arrive to find the city a ghost town. Bert investigates and discovers the people of the town disappeared twelve years earlier. Well, the adults did. The children are still there, and they want to kill Burton and Vicky as a sacrifice for their god, He Who Walks Behind the Rose. Now, that story should seem familiar to anyone who's seen the 1984 film. As we'll discuss in the Now Playing Podcast Movie Review, as played by Peter Horton and Linda Hamilton, Burton and Vicky's relationship is less caustic, but the general plot is unchanged. Bert hits a boy on the road, takes the body to Gatlin, and is attacked by the children who inhabit the town. The 2009 Sci-Fi Channel remake is an even more faithful adaptation of the story, with the action progressing on screen almost identically to King's original prose. But if the story seems familiar and somehow you haven't seen either of those movies, well, this is one of King's less original concepts. Plot-wise, the story is very much like King's Jerusalem's Lot, the first story printed in the Night Shift collection. While the setting is very different and they take place a hundred years apart, The core mystery of these short stories are deserted towns. In both cases, an extreme pagan religious sect in worship of a powerful demonic being caused the sudden death of all residents in the town. Both stories have churches perverted for the worship of this deity, while the townsfolk disappeared and a newcomer to the land must investigate. More, this is another king tale of a small community besieged by evil. We've seen that repeatedly in these night show stories, and in fact much of King's fiction from It to Cyclo the Werewolf to Misery are set in small towns. Here, though, we have a more rare case of a small town destroyed by evil. Rare, but not wholly unique. Carrie demolished Chamberlain, Maine, and the vampires made Salem's Lot a ghost town, and we'll see it again with Castle Rock and Needful Things. But more than the ghost town demon concept, Children of the Corn is but one of a series of evil children's stories. While the notion of killer children is an old one, traced at least as far back as William March's 1950s novel The Bad Seed, King, in an interview, credited the boom of the evil child movie to fear from adults of the 60s youth rebellion. The children on screen were a metaphor for the teenage hippie youth of the time. Be it Village of the Damned, or The Omen, or The Exorcist, Evil children were, and still are, a very popular subject of horror fiction. There's even an episode of Star Trek, the old 1960s series, Season 1, called Miri, that has strong resemblances to this night shift story, including Kirk and company being taken hostage by a group of unruly children living in a town now that all the adults are dead. But that said, as common as this story trope is, for King to write an evil child story is a little bit more unusual. First off, he was one of the rebellious 60s youth, his college newspaper column a rallying cry for change. As such, he wouldn't necessarily share the fear of that younger set that compelled older writers to their allegorical horror tales. More, while King has no hesitation about killing any of his characters, be they adults, children, or even infants, it's rare to have evil kids in King's stories. Usually, his stories have children that are able to see that magic exists and uncover the supernatural at work, while adults blithely ignore the truth. I mean, we see that King trope in characters such as Mark Petrie in Salem's Lot or Marty Koslaw in Cycle of the Werewolf. And in an interview in the early 80s, King said, quote, Children are lovely people. They're innocent, sweet, honorable, all those things. I know that's a romantic ideal, but to me they seem good, end quote. And he followed up with, quote, Mostly I see children as victims or forces of good. I spoke in previous reviews, most specifically Salem's lot, about King's view of good and evil, at least in this period of his life. He believed in the white as a spiritual, supernatural force of good, and the black the evil forces at work. And to King, children are a force for the white. I mean you see that in King's work. Danny Torrance in the Shining is a prime example of the child with the power to fight off evil but King has also had good, powerful children in Firestarter, It, and several more. I'm not saying Children of the Corn is the only instance of King riding evil children. There was a nasty boy vampire in Salem's lot, and we'll get to Pet Cemetery in time, but in most cases, including both of those, the children were possessed by black forces. Here, in Children of the Corn, these kids have their full faculties, and still decide to murder their parents. Though, yes, it is in service to he who walks behind the rose, their God. And in that way, this is very typical for King. Religious zealots are a repeated antagonists in King's work, as seen with Margaret White in King's first novel Carrie, or mother Carmody in The Mist, or The Children Here. King's evil Bible-thumpers often claim a form of Christianity, but their actions and teachings skew Old Testament, rather than preaching the tolerance and forgiveness of Jesus. Here, that's made literal, as the children have actually cut chunks of the New Testament out of their Bible, preferring the earlier Law of Moses and those chapters that show the Lord as vengeful. Yet here we have one of their earlier instances of King's focus on the religious fanatics. These children worship Christ, but their Lord is a pagan Christ that, as King puts it, slaughters his sheep for sacrifice instead of leading them. King sets up the pious nature of the evil early in the story, long before the children are introduced. It's revealed Vicky's parents were fanatics, along the lines of Margaret White. When Bert, looking for a radio station, hears the preachings of a young boy and finds it odd, Vicky writes it off, saying the boy was, quote, a teenager maybe, so what? That's what's so monstrous about that whole trip. They like to get hold of them while their minds are still rubber. They know how to put all the emotional checks and balances in. You should have been at some of the tent meetings my mother and father dragged me to. Some of the ones I was saved at." End quote. Through Vicki, King implies that while these children are a pagan aberration, some extremists use religion to teach intolerance and hatred and closed-mindedness and indoctrinate their followers while they're still young. With this little aside, King is making a statement that what we're about to see on the page could happen, with or without supernatural corncots. But truthfully, this is a mystery story. All the evil forces, both the children and the being they worship, are the questions Bert has to answer. When I finished reading the last page, I was still a bit uncertain on what really happened. But I wanted to know, and here lies the power of King's writing. The entire story, save the last page, are told from Bert's point of view. King didn't return to the first person storytelling he used in I Am The Doorway or One For The Road, but he might as well have. This tight, third-person perspective means we only see what Bert sees. The story starts with Bert and Vicky in the car, not the Gatlin massacre of 1964. The 1984 movie adaptation shows us very clearly what happened to all the townsfolk, and that ups the horror, but it kills the mystery. We, the movie viewer, know what Bert and Vicky are driving into. But here in King's original story, like in so many of his night shift tales, we start with the mundane. It's a couple arguing in a car. Then an event, perhaps story worthy in and of itself, happens. The man hits a boy on the road. Slowly, though, the mystery deepens. There are unknown figures in the corn and blood on the stalks. Then the boy's throat is slit. A murderer is about. It's a 30 page story, but over that length, King slowly reveals more and more about the town, like peeling back the layers of an onion. Next, Bert goes into town and finds the gas prices are four years out of date. Is the station closed, out of business? By this point, there's a distinct sense of unease, but we still don't know what's happening. Bert sees Gatlin as salvation, but when he finds the town deserted, the calendar in the dusty diner still turn to August 1964, the game is afoot. And it's impossible to really appreciate that, given the age of the story and the popularity of the film series. I don't know of anyone who's reading this wanting to see the King's story and won't have in their mind that there are evil religious children who murdered everyone in town and basically are lying in wait for Bert and Vicki. But I really tried to put that out of my mind and have the experience King wanted me to have when I read this story. And it's the same type of storytelling King used for other nightshare short stories like Grey Matter, Jerusalem's Lot, Strawberry Spring, and I Know What You Need. I mean, it's classical short story pacing and escalation. But here's something I feel really needs to be driven home. We are never truly sure what went down in this town. In the passage I read at the very beginning of this podcast, we have Bert in his mind telling Vicky what he thinks happens in the town. But he's not sure. What he knows is he found a defiled church, and in that church was a ledger of names and what appear to be birth dates and death dates. From that he simply supposes what happened. That the children became religious zealots that killed all the adults and then sacrificed their own as each child turned 19. Likely his guesses are right. In the absence of any alternative theories, we have to just take Burke's hypothesis as fact. But as fast as the story reads, as engrossing as the mystery is, I think many readers may not even notice that we aren't told absolutely what happened in Gatlin. But still, I think it's important to point out as much as we think we know, from the film adaptations or from Bert's guessing, there's still a big question mark about what happened back in 1964. And the reason that's so easily glossed over is because the children aren't the focus of this story. Yes, they're the titular characters of the story, and that title does hint at the terror to come, the climax revolves around them, but the bulk of this story is a two-person character study. It's written almost like a small stage production, with a very small cast and not much change of setting. For the vast majority of this story, we're in a car alone with Bert and Vicky. And those main characters, and I hesitate to call them protagonists, are two very nasty individuals. Vicky is a former prom queen who's ready with an excuse or an argument for anything Bert mentions. Ask her to drive, she gets migraines when she drives. As Bert tries to find a constable in Gatlin, Vicky is there to mock him and constantly state they should drive to the next town, Grand Island, 70 miles away. Bert describes her perfectly during one of their arguments when he says, quote, Why our marriage is falling apart in a nutshell. No, I won't. No, sir. And furthermore, I'll hold my breath till I turn blue if you don't let me have my way, end quote. Truthfully, Vicky is a horrible person, and that is made abundantly clear when Bert runs over the child with his car. Is Vicky worried about the kid? Is she concerned someone may be hurt? Is she worried about her husband possibly going to jail for manslaughter? No, this bitch turns to her husband and says, Congratulations, tiger. It's almost as if she's glad her husband killed a child. Later, she continues to prod, quote, Don't you want to come see so you can tell all your poker buddies what you bagged in Nebraska? End quote. Perhaps some of this could be written up as shock. But it's obvious that no car trip can save this marriage when Vicky, to her core, hates her husband. And from Bert, the feeling is mutual. As written, he didn't realize it until the events of the story. But King writes, quote, He looked at her and saw he wasn't having an identity crisis or a difficult life transition or any of those trendy things. He hated her. And he gave her a hard slap across the face. End quote. And I do have to wonder, is Bert any better? As I mentioned earlier, Bert is our point-of-view character for the vast majority of the story. Until the final page, everything is told to us through Bert's experience. And as such, he seems to get off a bit easier. With the child run over, Bert's first instinct is to check on the boy. Then when he realizes there's a killer about, he goes into protection mode. Vicky is still yelling, but Bert is remembering the training he received as a medic in Vietnam and trying to protect himself and his wife. Still, I have to again wonder about Bert being an unreliable narrator here. Given that it's Bert's head we're in for the story, he'd likely see himself in a better light than others might see him. If the story were told from Vicky's point of view, would I sympathize with her because the narration is slightly skewed in her favor and I find Bert to be the biggest asshole on the planet? More, as an adult male, am I perhaps biased to relate to the plight of another adult male as written by an adult male writer? Maybe. But while I find it easier to not hate Bert, he certainly has his moments where his character flaws shine. First, and most obvious, is when he hits his wife. Though, even in the 70s, that was often seen as a way to break through female hysteria, and Vicky was being hysterical. But, there's much more to hate about Bert than that. Despite trying to focus on finding the proper authorities and reporting a murder, Bert allows himself to be baited into petty arguments with Vicky. Arguments he enjoys winning, as after making one scathing comment, King writes Bert, quote, "...took a distinct pleasure at the way she flinched, the way her face crumbled," end quote. Beyond the verbal sparring, I question Bert's action, or more specifically his inaction, when the children attack. First, he just stands there watching as still in the car, Vicky is assaulted. Yes, it's hard to tell how much time passes since this is prose. It might have just been one or two seconds. Bert may have been too stunned to react, but it isn't until a kid goes at Vicky with a knife that her husband even begins to try and stop them. While he is set on doing what seems to be the right and rational thing, finding a cop after an accident, he is, in his own way, as stubborn as Vicky. And that final nail in the coffin comes soon after, when Bert is fleeing the children and realizes, for all her harping, Vicky was right to want to leave, thinking, quote, if he had only listened, end quote. No, these are two nasty characters that get into a nastier situation. Perhaps the children are symbolic of the vitriol between the two characters. Any children their union could have spawned is intolerance and death. But more, with killer children going after a bitter couple, this almost doesn't feel like a King story to me. Sure, all of his works have some pretty nasty, ugly people, your Chris Hargensons, but rarely are they the main character. And by putting the ugly nature of this couple front and center, I would swear this is a Richard Bachman tale. King has always saved his hardest, ugliest characters for stories written under that pen name. And I mentioned before that in their book, The Complete Stephen King Universe, authors Stanley Waiter, Christopher Golden, and Hank Wagner put some stories written under King's name in that Bachman category. Now, they focused on King's crime stories, the ones that mostly lack supernatural elements. They included The Ledge and Quitters Incorporated. But Bachman did have supernatural elements in Thinner, and other than the Cthulhu-like He Who Walks Behind the Rose, this story is every bit as ugly as those others. While Bert and Vicky may be relatable, this was the 70s, which was the decade that divorce became statistically prevalent. Bickering couples headed for divorce court were common, so maybe this couple was just there to have characters to whom the readers of Penthouse could relate? But still, these two are so caustic, so unsympathetic, so unlike the usual king protagonist, that it becomes easy to be apathetic about their fate. Do I care if they're sacrificed to this corn god, or is the world a better place without him? And since I invoked He Who Walks Behind the Rose, here I'm going to issue a spoiler alert. Like so many of King's Night stories, this one has a twist ending, and the story is so short, it feels impossible to not discuss how the tale ends. So, here we go. I mentioned the history of Gatlin is left vague, but at the very end of the story, we learn one important fact. He Who Walks Behind the Rose is not the figment of a child's overactive imagination, nor is it an agricultural euphemism for God. Surprise! There's an actual demon after all! And again, King goes back to his Lovecraftian roots, creating yet another monstrous variation of Cthulhu, this time one who lives in the cornfields of rural America instead of in an underwater city, as Lovecraft originally wrote. He who walks behind the rose was real, and since the children failed to kill Bert, he who walks has to take care of it himself. King gives this corn god little description, just that, quote, Bert saw something huge bulking up to the sky, something green with terrible red eyes the size of footballs, something that smelled like dried corn husks years in some dark barn, end quote. Up until this passage, 29 pages into the 30 page story, the villain of this tale seemed a human one, Even Bert's passage, where he hypothesizes what happened to the adults of Gatlin, set up children upset with the harvest, blaming poor crops on adult sin. This final escalation of the Children of the Corn is an unexpected turn of events, but one completely in line with King's horror writing in general, and in particular, the stories collected in Night Shift. I find myself wishing, though, that the story ended with those lines I just read. Like I said. This entire story is told from the point of view of Bert, but now Bert is dead. He was killed by the god of corn, and Vicky is dead. She was a crucified sacrifice for he who walks behind the rose. The story is over. What more is there to say? But there is a one-page epilogue to King's Tale. Our character-driven perspective is gone. Instead, this ending is told from the point of view of an omniscient narrator. The children of the corn gather in the clearing and witness Bert's body. And the group's seer, a nine-year-old boy named Isaac, gives the children a message. He who walks behind the rose is displeased, and he's lowered what they call the, quote, age of favor, unquote, the age at which the children must be killed, from 19 to 18. All 18-year-olds in the community will walk into the corn that night to meet their god and their death. This ending is so rife with interesting details. I mean, it's the first time we get to see the children interact in a non-violent way. Their only appearance in the story thus far was attacking Vicky and chasing Bert. Now we see them worship. We discover there are relationships. That one 18-year-old boy named Malachi has fathered an unborn child, and now, due to the new law, he'll never see his baby born. This ending was certainly helpful to the screenwriters of the Children of the Corn movie, I can't imagine what that film would be without an Isaac, without a Malachi, but they're just in the last page of this short story. So if it has all of those positives, why do I wish this page wasn't included in the story? Well, I think this epilogue completely changes the tale's context. Suddenly, instead of a standard evil children's story, I start to wonder if there's a different metaphor at play, one for the Vietnam War. It was casually mentioned by King that Bert had served in Nam, but now we have boys going into the fields to die? The age of favor changing to 18? Coincidentally, the age where an American boy could be drafted? And here, these children fought and died for their corn. And Malachi did his duty and never looked back as he walked to his death like a good soldier. Hell, King even writes that the Gatlin High School would be named John F. Kennedy. Now, I'm not the first to think of this. And to those of us who see Vietnam in these night shift cornfields, King has loudly proclaimed, there is no way in hell he intended this story to be an allegory for Vietnam. But I'm not the first nor the last to bring this up, and that makes me wonder what might have subconsciously drove King to write Children of the Corn. But this ending, I do wonder if it was just written to answer one question, the question that started the whole tale. Who cut the throat of the boy Bert hit with his car? Bert never finds an answer. Why did the boy run into the street? I view it as very possible that King felt his story was done, and then realized, oops, those questions weren't answered, so here's this page, so that readers don't feel unfulfilled. But yet, it still raises more questions. Why was the boy killed? He had a corncob crucifix in his suitcase, so he was one of the children. He wasn't an interloper like Bert or Vicky. Well in this final page, we get half answers. The boy was named Japheth, but for whatever sin he committed, he was now known as Ahaz, cursed of God, named after the wicked biblical king of Judah. His throat was cut by Malachi, and Ahaz's body was thrown out of the corn lest it pollute the soil. But what did Ahaz do to be known as cursed of God? Why was he being hunted? Was he trying to leave the cult? That's the answer the 1984 film gives, and having seen that film dozens of times, I'm predisposed to go to that answer but this story never says. Then, the final two paragraphs get even stranger as we're introduced to Ruth, the mother of Malachi's unborn child. She hates the corn and dreams of burning it, but she was afraid of he who walks behind the rose, afraid that he can even read her dark thoughts. What's going on with this? Showing dissent within the ranks. Is King drawing a parallel here between Ruth and Vicky, both being women who feel trapped in a situation that they want out of, and secretly dream of escaping? Is Ruth's desire to burn the corn the same as Vicky's desire to hurt her husband? I'm really stretching here, the story gives me nothing to go on, but that King puts all of these things in, I'm just desperately flailing to find linkages, to find meaning, and I think that with the characters and the turmoil introduced on this last page, King could have had another entire short story, or, given the author's way with words, maybe a whole novel. There are interpersonal relationships here rife for exploration, and as murderous and spiteful as these kids may be, they still seem less repulsive than Vicky and Bert. More, there are questions to be answered, such as how has this town, operating with no adults for 12 years, not been discovered already? That's even a question King raises in Bert's thoughts. But it's really that author's trick, where they're telling the reader, Yeah, I know this is kind of a silly premise, but I realize that as long as you do, so let's just move past. He acknowledges it, but King provides no answers. But despite the fertile ground I see for more stories, King has never returned to Gatlin proper. The town hasn't wholly left his thoughts, Gatlin has been name-dropped in a couple future King works, specifically the novel It and the short story 1922, which was collected in King's Full Dark No Stars. Where Gatlin is not mentioned, though, is in The Stand, and this constant listener is a warning about relying too much on wiki entries. I've gotten emails from several listeners telling me that he who walks behind the rose is actually Randall Flagg, the primary antagonist in King's 1978 epic novel, The Stand. Now, I'd never heard that, but I do know King likes to make connections between his works, and Flagg is a primary character to cross over from story to story. Now, Flagg is a shapeshifter, but I'd never heard him described as a giant beast with football-sized eyes. So I researched and I read. I read not only this short story, but The Stand itself, I also followed Wiki down its rabbit hole of links, which went to an unsourced Buzzfeed article stating that Flag may be He Who Walks Behind the Rose. Well, I'm sorry to be a spoil sport, but I'm pretty sure that's not the case. Now, there are some similarities between He Who Walks Behind the Rose and Flag, and those may have confused the Buzzfeed author, but I think those are due to King's mindset when writing more than anything else. While Children of the Corn was printed in 1977, the story is set in July of 1976, and it was likely written around that same time, maybe a little bit before. And I bring up the creation of this short story because I feel it's important to contextualize it as part of King's work and his life. Because while King is strongly associated with his home state of Maine, it's where he lives and where most of his stories are set, but as I noted in a couple previous podcasts, He did leave that state for a few years after the death of his mother in 1974. He, his wife, and children moved to Boulder, Colorado, and his fiction moved with him. I mean, his first two novels, *Carrie* and Salem's Lot, were written in Maine, and also set in Maine. King was inspired for his third book, The Shining, while traveling in his new home state of Colorado, and that's where that story is set. His fourth full novel, The Stand, also has much of its action set in Boulder, likely because that's where King was living at the time, though he did return to Maine before The Stand hit bookshelves. But in The Stand, the characters travel to Boulder, some from Maine, but they don't go to Colorado directly. The characters share a vision of a small house in a town called Hemingford Home, Nebraska. The house is on a farmland surrounded by acres and acres of corn. Now, sometimes the dreams are pleasant, and a kindly figure named Mother Abigail calls the people to this safe place. But sometimes the dreams become nightmares with an evil man coming after them from the cornfield. Now, if I can be allowed to play the role of the deconstructionist for a few moments, given the location and descriptions found in both the stand and the children of the corn, it's obvious to me that King was fascinated by the dense, tall cornfields that he likely saw while traveling through the Midwest to his new Colorado home. Living in Illinois myself, I've had my fair share of experiences with cornfields and corn mazes, and I do indeed know that you can get lost inside those stalks that stand taller than most men. King took that notion of evil hiding unseen in the corn and used it twice. It's the setting of a few scenes in the stand, and it's the entire focus of Children of the Corn. Though, just due to the length of the stand, I actually think he spends more time talking about it in that novel than he does in this entire short story. But no, just because they both have scenes about people behind corn doesn't make He Who Walks Behind the Rose an alias for Randall Flagg. It's just King repeating motifs in his fiction, and as I've been doing this Stephen King book retrospective, Early into it as I am, I've come to realize right away that King's an author who likes to explore his ideas repeatedly. From the bad parent to the evil religious fundamentalist to the psychic child to the abusive father to, yeah, evil forces that hide in tall corn. He even uses the same words to describe the corn as dangerous in both the stand and children of the corn, saying that there are, quote, sword-like leaves, unquote, on the stalks. All that having been said, though, King is known for creating his own geography in Maine, where his created cities of Derry and Salem's Lot and Chamberlain all exist in his mind. And likewise, he's had some fun in the past 30 years linking his two fictional Nebraska cities, Gatlin and Hemingford Home. In the short story 1922, King writes about Highway 63, which he says will lead you right through the deserted town of Gatlin and eventually into Hemingford Home. He also gives it more geography, putting Hemingford Home 80 miles west of Omaha. Now, King first made the links between Hemingford Home and Gatlin when adapting Children of the Corn for the screen. His contract stipulated that he would get first pass at any screenplay for this short story. And in that, he wrote a scene where Bert and Vicky came to a fork in the road. One way led to Gatlin, the other to Hemingford Home. And knowing what I do about Mother Abigail and the Stand, I see that as one path leads to salvation, the other to death and damnation. But King's screenplay was never actually used for a corn film. The 1984 movie as released was written by George Goldsmith, and according to the film's creators, they threw out everything from King's original treatment. But it seems Goldsmith took at least that detail from King because the final 1984 film mentions the town nearest to Gatlin is Hemingford. Not Hemingford Home, but just Hemingford. That's not at all in the short story, and it's too big of a coincidence to think Goldsmith made it up on his own. It's a town that's mentioned in Part 1, and the entire setting for Children of the Corn 2, so we will certainly be talking about Hemingford over at NowPlayingPodcast.com as we review all nine films on which this story is based. I completely understand why studios would want to adapt Children of the Corn for screen. It's a suspenseful short story and one of my favorite entries in this entire Night Shift collection. I could see why people would want to plow this field of ideas. But I'm not sure if it's nine films interesting. But join us over at NowPlayingPodcast.com starting Tuesday and well into October as we stalk all nine movies and see how much of King's original ideas made it to screen. And also, already at NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can hear our review of the first Children of the Corn adaptation, before 1984, when it made it screens as a major motion picture, it was a Dollar Baby that was released in 1983. A Dollar Baby is an independent or student film where Stephen King sells the non-exclusive rights to the filmmaker for $1, the key being that that filmmaker can use it only to build his reputation and for festivals, but not distribute it. However, in the 80s, three Dollar Babies got renegotiated and released to home video, the third of which was the very first adaptation of Children of the Corn. Stuart, Jacob, and I reviewed that last spring, and you can find that in the archives under the Night Shift collection. And as for Books and Nachos, while I'm done with Children of the Corn, I'm not done with Nebraska. While Gatlin never featured prominently in any other King story, Hemingford Home, that town from the stand, is a primary locale in King's short story The Last Rung on the Ladder, the tale that immediately follows Children of the Corn in the Night Shift collection. And as for The Stand itself, for those of you who like to read along with me as I do these reviews, it's probably time to get started. It's only August, but The Stand is King's longest novel to date, and there are three different versions. Only the latest, the longest, uncut version is still in print, but I've tracked down the other two, and I'm reading all three for my review, which will be coming to you this year in early December. But while I'm reading this book three times, you probably only need to read it once, and you have a bit over three months. In the meantime, I'll be back over the next two weeks reviewing the last short stories from Night Shift with The Last Rung on the Ladder, and then the week after, finishing Night Shift with The Man Who Loved Flowers. I hope you'll join me for these reviews. And in the meantime, come to the forums and talk to me. Let me know what you think of this Children of the Corn story. Do you see Vietnam? Do you see a correlation between Ruth and Vicky? Let me know. There's a link to the forums from the homepage at booksandnachos.com. I'll talk to you next week. And in the meantime, please remember to support your local bookstore.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our show by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. You can also find dozens more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2014, all rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated.